and welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Kate Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. Hi, listeners. Here's a pop quiz. Is more healthcare better care? Well, you probably already peeked at the answer key and you know the right answer. The right answer is no, or at least not necessarily. The technical term that we use and have applied to this problem is overuse. The purveying and consumption of healthcare, drugs, visits, tests, hospital days, surgeries, and more that according to science don't actually help patients at all. We sometimes call this waste. We want to today turn on the lights on overuse. How much overuse is there? Why is it there? What are its consequences, not just in cost, but also and especially in health and well-being for patients? To help us examine this, we're joined today by Dr. Vikas Saini. He's president of the Lown Institute, a Boston-based organization whose mission is to try to make sure that patients get all the care that can help them and only the care that can help them. Welcome, Vikas. We're so delighted that you could join us, having known you for so many years. I know how much you have to offer our listeners on our podcast, Turn On The Lights. We want to help people understand healthcare at a level of depth they may not be able to, especially if they're lay people. And one of the topics that we want to dive into is overuse, which is too much healthcare. So that's not the only thing we'll talk with you about, but why don't we start there? Do we use too much healthcare in America? <laughs> Thanks for having me, Don. Well, the question really is in the eye of the beholder. So I would say the answer is almost certainly there is a significant amount of health care that is what the term of art these days in academia is low value. It's not giving us what we think we're getting and we're spending money on it. Different people call it different things. You can call it waste. You can call it low value care. But there's no question that it is there in our system. It's there in most every system in the world. And so some of it is rooted in very, very deep aspects of modern medicine. So Fikas, for the benefit of all of our listeners, can you give some examples of what too much medicine looks like, some specifics, then we'll get back to your own story. Sure. I think most people might have a sense of it, but let's just say routine orders of lab tests, especially when you're in the hospital, daily orders of blood counts or this or that or the other, mostly because it's easy and the system is automated. Prescribing antibiotics when it's almost certainly not a bacterial infection, but you're kind of doing it to make everybody feel good. And then the more important, more complicated, more expensive, and potentially more risk of harm, you know, bigger procedures like stenting coronary arteries for stable disease, certain kinds of spine surgery, certain kinds of other techniques. These are all things that are done where the evidence is either really lacking or actually exists that it doesn't do you good. So this is really the kind of stuff that if we could eliminate it, we would be freeing up serious dollars, serious staffing resources for all the stuff that really matters. You do carry around in your head some kind of number, like what percent of healthcare falls into that category of stuff that just doesn't help? This is a topic of great discussion and debate. I remember we were in a large conference hall with two, 300 people. It was a lounge conference. And we asked people for their estimate of the number. 
So amongst people who think about this, that was the selected crowd, obviously. The old timers were up to 30 to 40%. Nobody else wanted to go there. But really, I think the more you see, the more you wonder if all the stuff we do really matters. But there have been various estimates. Don, I mean, your paper is a really important one. Berwick and Hackbarth, we cite it regularly, which talks about the different types of waste. And your estimate was pretty big, 250 billion or thereabouts. And so we're talking easily 10%. I think that one would be easily defensible. It's probably higher, but harder to measure and point to. Because take us into why this happens. You've got maybe 10%, maybe it's even higher than that amount of the care and the money that we spend perhaps being on low value care. Why does this happen? What are the reasons that this takes place? How can we start to untangle why we are where we are? Sure. Well, there's no question that the thing that lots of people want to go to, which is the money, there's no question that plays a role, but the role it plays is actually fairly subtle. It's not like people sit around saying, you know, let me do something that doesn't work, but it's more that the incentives, the barriers, all those align a certain way. And so in a volume-driven system in which people get paid to do things, and where doing things like procedures or technical things are paid more than sitting and talking and figuring something out, which can often be more efficient, that's a big driver. But the evidence that it's not really the whole story or even the main story is that if you go around the world, this is a problem everywhere. It's a problem deep in the culture of medicine. And maybe some of it is just human nature in the sense that we all want to fix technology, especially the bright, new, shiny thing. We all, and I mean all of us, really have a tendency to say, ah, this must be better. And so pell-mell, we go in that direction. There's no question that our ability to generate evidence and kind of actually understand what works and doesn't work often falls way behind the actual deployment of the practice. And there's chapter and verse, condition after condition where that's true. I like to quote a friend of ours, Steve Nissen at the Cleveland Clinic, who likes to say the road to hell is paved with biologic plausibility. And so you get a procedure that seems to make sense. And so you just go to town. And especially if you get reimbursed for it, it's not, there's no barrier to do it. And you end up at a place where you're way ahead of the evidence. And I'll just cite one great example. That's PA catheters. So these are catheters that are put inside the heart to monitor the pressure of the heart. And when I was a young physician and intern, they were, you know, vogue. In fact, I remember getting chewed out at the CCU at Hopkins once because I didn't put it in the next morning on rounds. And the actual definitive clinical trials took 10, 20 years to get done to show, oh, you know what? (laughs) It actually doesn't need to be used the way it was used. And there's many cases like that. The case of coronary stents is another one in my own field where the practice took off. I mean, what's not to like? You got a clogged artery, you go in, you open it up. Of course that must work. And it took 20, 30 years to really figure out that the cases where it works are a limited subset of all the use cases that were purported. So there you go. Because you were born and bred and trained in this same system, you're a cardiologist. Let's hear a little bit about your personal story. What brought you into these concerns? And you may want to tell us a little about Dr. Lown and also about the Lown Institute and sort of what your mission has become. Oh, yeah, sure. Thanks, Don. 
I went to med school in Canada. And then, as I said, I was in Baltimore doing my medical residency when I fell in love with cardiology. And I like to say I fell in love with it for all the wrong reasons. The toys, the technology, the drama, <laughs> the middle of the night, which by the time I was 45 and 50 with kids was like, oh man, this is hard. <laughs> but when I came to Boston and I trained with Bernard Lown, I knew him as somebody who'd done a lot of important work on mind-body medicine. Amazingly enough, I didn't know a lot about all his other great work. In fact, he developed the first defibrillator. He had built the first coronary care unit in Boston at Harvard. And what I learned from him was, and our motto used to be, his motto was, do as much as possible for the patient and as little as possible to the patient. And I didn't fully realize how I'd been sort of indoctrinated in that and how much it was not really mainstream until I went out into practice. And then I began to see the wide practice variation that people who research this stuff always talk about. But it's quite striking when you're out there and you see it. And so for me, it became clear that we all want kind of certainty. I mean, being a doctor, especially in cardiology, but many, many fields, you know, there's a lot of pressure. You make the wrong decision and it is serious stuff. So there's a lot of pressure and a lot of uncertainty. And so the need to feel certain is powerful. And in a sense, that's part of what maybe drives this. Like you hang your hat on whatever you've got, and sometimes it's inadequate. And so when I began to see that high variation, and I began to see cases where, you know, I don't know why this was done, and began to question it, I think that combination of my background and then my own maybe temperament, I mean, maybe it's the Canadian in me or something, I don't know. But there was some aspect of it that led me to sort of question. And, and then I started a primary care group that took risk contracts and began to see the sort of inners of the system and how it works and all the different dimensions, including the way the money flows and referrals flow and all of that. Just to interrupt, can you explain what a risk contract is? Very oh yeah, sure. So risk contracts are an old version of what is now called Medicare Advantage. And there's a lot of problems with Medicare Advantage today, so I don't even want to go there. But the concept was that a group of clinicians or a provider network would take the burden of the financial responsibility, not just take care of the patients, but take care of the budget. And to be on a budget, first of all, it takes care. You need to know what you're doing. You also need a large enough size that you're not trying to make decisions on the fly that's based on a budget because that's crazy. So you need a large enough group. But when you do, in my personal opinion, it is much preferable having insurance companies with 800 numbers that you know you have to call, can I do this? Can I not do this? In a risk contract, the provider group has the responsibility to do the right thing clinically and manage it in a way that's cost effective. And it puts the burden on clinicians to think more carefully. What keeps them from doing too little from withholding care? Going to make money if they do less, right? No, you're absolutely right. It is absolutely one of the concerns. And that's why you have to think about this very carefully. The way you do that is you ensure that for any individual physician, the compensation package is not solely dependent on that. You can create a balanced compensation package that includes bonuses and incentives, both for doing stuff or getting up in the middle of the night for you know, not leaving at 3.30 on a Friday, things that need to happen. And you can balance that out with not overdoing it. 
And so it has to be thought carefully. The only way it really works is at some scale. It can't be a five-person group or even a 20-person group. But if you get to larger and larger scale, you can do that. Now, one of the problems is, I didn't really want to go there, but one of the problems with Medicare Advantage, especially the privatized ones that are being driven by a lot of for-profit companies, is precisely what you said. I mean, the concern is real that care will be skimped. And so this is an ongoing thing we got to talk about. Because let me go back to something. And Don was heading there a little bit with your training and your background, your work with Bernard Lown and this statement that you made about do as much as possible for the patient, but as little as possible to the patient, which I, I love that quote. And I want to ask you if you can think back to an experience that you might have had at some point in your work and perhaps a patient, perhaps a procedure, perhaps something you were doing where this sort of issue of medical overuse became clear to you. Was there a moment in your story where your work intersected with a person or a patient in which you saw this maybe playing out? It's sort of a cumulative thing. So I can remember a number of cases. So let me just quickly say, once when I was training with Bernard, once the word got out, long before I got there as a fellow, but once the word got out, we got a lot of second opinion patients. We had a lot of people coming, including, I won't name names, but a lot of prominent physicians who would come. And what we found was that, I mean, there was a series, I think it was reported out, but what we found was that in a cohort of people that had been told they need surgery or they need a stent, in which many had the date, and sometimes the date was like next week, and they came for the opinion, 85% of the time we managed them medically. And then so because these are patients that had been told by their doctor that they need a coronary procedure, a heart yes. of some kind, and they're yes. coming to you for a second opinion. And you're looking at them and you're saying, based on the data that you've given us and the lab test and the radiology and whatever was available, you actually don't need that procedure. You, right. You've been misinformed. Is that what's happening here? That's what happened. And we had a cohort of several hundred like that, three, four, five hundred. And wow. I wanted to have a big dinner, gala dinner, like 20 years later with all these people to say, you know, 20 years ago, I was told, and here I am. I think it would have been a lot of fun, but we, we never did it. So that's what I mean. But you ask, what do I remember? So what you remember, it's difficult. And any clinician knows it's easy to second guess after the fact, right? But somebody who you would say, you know, I don't think this is needed, but their own doc is pushing it and pushing it. And they eventually go have it and they stroke out. I remember a case when I was practicing like that. I won't say where and when, but that happens. And then you ask yourself, damn, could that have been avoided? Now that's true for any medical procedure, right? So I don't think it's particular about this, but when you in your heart kind of feel like, geez, I never would have done that, that really hits you. And so there are versions like that. I mean, I used to, the chronically occluded artery that just gets opened in the cath lab, stented up, even though it's been chronically closed, it's not doing anybody any harm. Whatever harm it was going to do has been done. And there's all sorts of physiologic rationales for it. I never understood that. And you'd think it would get better, but just this week, I got contacted by a friend, a senior, I mean, very senior clinician, a psychiatrist who has a good friend who they have an asymptomatic blockage. It's not doing anybody any harm. Not only that, they have a stress test in which it's not even limiting any flow. And 
by all standards, okay, this is not worth doing. And they did a CT angiogram and, oh, you've got a blockage and now we got to do something. Let's do an angiogram, you know. So these cascades happen all the time in medicine. And sometimes, and this is the hard part, this is the human nature part, sometimes it's better not to look. And that's a hard thing to say, because if you can look, you want to look. And once you look, then you can't unsee that. And then you're spending all your time worrying. So so in this story you're telling, so a patient is all scheduled to have a cardiac cath, an insertion of a stent or some cardiac procedure. And then they hear about you and they come and they get a second opinion. You say, no, wait a minute. The science doesn't say that you'll benefit from this. This must not make you very popular among some of your colleagues who were originally recommending intervention. Is that a problem? Well, I didn't bear the brunt of it the same way Lown did or his associate, Tom Grayboys. I remember Tom Grayboys gave a talk at the American Heart Association. I heard this secondhand. We talked about, you know, the medical management of coronary disease, the stuff we do in the way I was trained. And at the airport, you know, people were talking about him and he overheard and they were like, yeah, well, if he came into my ER, you know, fine, I'm not going to stent him, you know, that kind of thing. So it got lonely for them. I think by the time I was really in practice, it was a little clearer when you could and when you couldn't. And the big distinction between stable disease and unstable disease, I think was becoming very, very clear. And so if you're having a heart attack, a threatened heart attack, if you're having accelerating angina, that kind of thing, it's pretty clear you need to go in, you need to fix that. And so it's pretty binary. Once it got a little more binary, it was less lonely. But there's no question the cultural dimension, you know, of Mavericks was at play. I remember Harlan Krumholtz, you probably know Harlan at Yale, at one time introduced me to one of his fellows and said, you know, the Lown Group, they're like these renegade doctors who actually want to take care of people. And it was a nice compliment. And it's, you know, excessive in a sense. But I think it's different now. I think there's lots more going on. There's more data. And finally, 30 years later, we have enough randomized data for people to really say, come on. Because what about the patient side of this? So I can see how there would be physicians, perhaps the referring doctors who would be concerned that you were saying something different, that you had a different opinion, but who are the patients in all this? The patient is sitting there, they've been told they need a procedure, they need a certain kind of care. Now you're telling me that they don't need it kind of thing, that I don't need it, that I don't need a procedure. Does the patient kind of react here, whether to the stent issue or to medical overuse in general, or physicians that are practicing like you do, avoiding low value care? Is there a patient response that might be, wait a minute, are you holding back because you're trying to save some money or something along those lines? I mean, you get a bit of a resistance from the patient side. These patients come in saying, I need an antibiotic or I need a XYZ. And yet you're saying, wait a minute, the evidence doesn't hold that. What yeah. kind of reaction have you gotten from patients on this? Oh, this is a very, very important and multifaceted question. So let me just say at the outset. So thinking about being in community practice as a cardiologist, I had the luxury that the buck stops here, right? If I were a primary care doc, it's much harder. But at the end of the day, whether you're a primary care doc, whether you're the specialist, at the end of the day, it's about what? It's about trust. It's about, you know what you're talking about, and I'm going to sort of pay attention, and I'm going to go along. And that's true whether you're practicing low-value care or high-value care. A lot of what happens is the clinician has the privilege 
It is truly a privilege. I read that in my first year of medical school, the opening pages of Harrison's, and I thought, okay, well, this is kind of nice sentimentality, but no, this is it. We are unbelievably privileged to be able to help people with our knowledge and to be trusted. And so I think the onus really falls on us as professionals. But that said, when the patient comes to a primary care doc with a headache and wants the CAT scan, and it's a Friday afternoon, and it's 4 o'clock or 4.30, it's a lot easier just to order the damn CAT scan than it is to spend an extra 30 minutes and going over this, that, and the other. If you have a longitudinal relationship, you know each other, it's a trusted relationship, you're really collaborating. You know, all the sentiments that we all yammer on about, but if it's real, then it happens. It's actually pretty efficient. If you don't have that, it almost doesn't matter. It's easy to just write the antibiotic prescription or order the test because if you're a PCP, it's kind of like, damn, you know, they'll just fire me. And I heard this from lots of PCPs, right? It's great what you save a cost, but I'm just going to lose the patient. They'll go somewhere else. And that's absolutely true. And this is a bigger problem in our society, the whole trust issue and information, the internet. So that's a whole other thing. Can you go in a little bit more there on the trust issue? How do you build that? You're in a referring relationship often, and you've got a window of time with someone you may not have met before, and you've got to establish trust quickly so that the patient can believe your advice. How do you do that? What's your recipe? Well, first of all, it's not as heroic as it sounds because... The second opinion patients, they came to us. We didn't impose ourselves on them. So they already had a predilection. They wanted a different view. PCPs are referred, they kind of know you and they know your style. They know what's what. And so they know when they want, when they want somebody to get an intervention, they'll send them to an interventionist, you know? When they want someone who they don't think needs an intervention, they'll send them to someone who doesn't need an intervention. So there's a lot of filtering going on. And if you're into the math, you know, the Bayesian statistics are going to look like a tornado there because it's all going to depend. So that's a big part of it, I think. But that said, again, I hate to sound this way, but the old truths are really there. It's about your demeanor. It's about how open you are. It's about how willing you are to be challenged. It's about really taking time, really taking time to understand that person, their life, their situation. And when you do all of that, then I think you have some of the trust. You've earned some of that trust. And our system, sadly, is making taking time harder and harder and harder. It makes it harder to do that. So I think there are deep problems systemically with how we structure patient care. You know, Bernard was, I don't know if he got it from somewhere else, but Bernard had this saying that in other fields, like on the factory floor, the most efficient thing is to be faster and better. And that's what we've applied to healthcare and medicine. It's kind of the notion of the assembly line. And of course, for certain things like procedures, the more you do, the better you are at them. Sure, all that's true. But Bernard would say the paradox in healthcare is the more time you spend with the patient, the more efficient you are, because you can eliminate all sorts of extrinsic factors, psychological factors. You just need to make that investment. So we need a system that allows us to do that. That's a completely different definition of productivity from what a lot of healthcare is under today is doctors are under pressure to see more patients, not fewer and the reward system is about volume. Because let's take the patient's point of view here. So if you're listening to you in this podcast and you're saying, you know, a lot of the stuff that might be recommended for you, you may not need. 
And there are people out there like you and your colleagues who may be able to say, I know it sounds logical, but it isn't the right thing. What can a patient do to grapple with this issue of low value care and overuse of things that don't help? Don't pretend it's easy. I mean, when physicians become patients, you really understand, you see how it works. And the system is sort of disempowering and you're on a conveyor belt. I mean, I've experienced it myself, even everything I know and believe, you know, when you're a patient, suddenly it's like, okay, tell me where to go. So there's a few things. I think the awareness needn't mean that you have to be kind of anxious or super skeptical. But I think it's just, you have to be aware that it's not all cut and dried, that it's perfectly reasonable to recognize some things. You want to do the right thing and everybody wants to do the right thing, but in order to get there, it takes a little time. And so for patients, it means being aware that there's discretion in here. And the way to tease that out is, okay, doc, what is my alternative? If I don't do that, what happens? And what happens next year? What happens in 10 years? And obviously nobody can say, but the flip is also true. Like when people say, oh, you have this thing and and we got to do this right away. They're kind of saying, and if we don't, you know, something's going to happen to you like tomorrow or next week or even next month or next year, whatever it is. But having that conversation is worthwhile. So people, you know, the patient begins to understand the optionality of discretion. The other is, not just what if I don't do it, what is the harm of not doing it? What is the harm of doing it? What exactly, what's the worst thing that could happen? And this is a conversation, not the rapid fire. I need you to sign this consent form. It's possible that you could have bleeding, swelling, inflammation, infection, blah, blah. It's kind of like the car commercials or the drug ads on TV. It's not that, it's a conversation. And I think most surgeons and people who do procedures recognize they have to do that and they usually do it. But that's the other moment for the patient to really explore that. I don't recommend trolling the internet because, oh my God, it's really hard to figure out what's really true and what's happening. And there's so much bias, but trust on the internet is its own thing. Beyond that, and certainly for procedures and major procedures, there's nothing wrong with wanting a second opinion. And ideally, it's a second opinion from somebody not in the same place, not in the same community or culture or business unit or any of that. And really try to understand that. And a clinician who's doing a major procedure on you should recognize that if the patient wants to think about and get another opinion, that's their right. It is part and parcel of being a physician that you want more input. Would always say, I welcome another person's opinion. This is hard stuff. And it gets lonely, you know, making these calls for people. So I think That's part of it. That's really good advice. I mean, you're giving us a really practical thing for patients to consider, especially when they're doing something big, like having a procedure of some sort, find another opinion if you're not sure. And on the physician side, let's not be too defensive about our opinions. You have welcomed the point of view of another fellow clinician that might have a different perspective on something. I mean, that's a hard thing, I think, to accommodate as clinicians sometimes, but it's something that we have to get better at doing as our patients do what you're asking them to do, which is take their concerns and get another voice in the picture so to help balance the point of view, which makes a lot of sense. You know, because I wonder if you could comment on this notion. I think there's a popular kind of sentiment that 
Healthcare is a good thing. And to be clear, healthcare can be a good thing. But the title of our show here is that more healthcare isn't always better. And I think that's an interesting phenomenon that I'm not sure that everyone would necessarily immediately understand. Because I think that sort of more healthcare, isn't that always better? Might be the point of view that I think the general public might have. But how do we untangle that belief? How do we start to help people understand that actually healthcare can be quite risky, that it can be quite dangerous, that the technologies that we have available to us now can be amazing and can solve problems that we've never experienced before and never thought we could possibly solve. But there's also considerable risk in healthcare and there's considerable downside potentially that's out there. And as you say, some harm that can be done. How do we help people really grapple with that notion and understand that more healthcare isn't necessarily better for us? I would say that it's going to take a lot of effort. Efforts like this podcast, it's going to take communications. It's going to take a different approach to talking to people, to discussing these issues and really getting the message out there. It's going to take teaching of a certain sort. So for example, there's a useful rubric, which is, you know, of all the stuff we do, there's some stuff that just anybody in their right mind would do it. It's not even worth spending a lot of time on. It's just, it's so obvious it works, it's important, it's necessary, it's life-saving. Let's not waste a lot of time, anybody's time on that. Let's just go for it. There's other stuff where it's pretty clear this just doesn't work. And doing this risks you for harm, for no reason, costs. Nowadays, out-of-pocket costs. The idea of going into medical debt and having your wages garnished or your liens put on your house, which happens around the country, for stuff that actually wasn't even necessary. I mean, that just drives me ballistic. Yeah, you're talking about two different categories of harm. One category is that the thing that we thought was going to be helpful to you from a health perspective might not be helpful. But you're talking about another kind of harm, which is a financial harm that land people. And there's almost, I think there's 100 million Americans facing medical debt at the moment, many facing medical bankruptcy many millions facing medical bankruptcy. So this point that you're raising that, again, more isn't always better, relates not only to the health effect, but also to a financial effect, which can be very pernicious. Absolutely. And again, part of the problem is not about medicine per se. Part of that problem is just how we've structured the healthcare system. I happen to think that co-pays and deductibles and this whole approach of the last 20, 30 years, and it's important to understand it's historically contingent. This is not written in stone from Moses or, you know, from Sinai. This is just stuff that emerged in the last 20, 30 years. Copays and deductibles are not that great for the kinds of outcomes we really want to see. But that's a whole other topic, right? In terms of this issue, in terms of how the, what else we can do to get this out there, once people recognize that there are these trade-offs and between the stuff that's obvious that only a crazy person wouldn't do and the stuff that only a crazy person would do, there's this vast gray zone. And this is an area that is tricky, but my position is that the core solution there is really a lot more democracy in healthcare, a health democracy. That's kind of where I'm at. And what I mean by that, so both of you know about the Nuka Clinic, I don't know if the listeners will, or, you know, there's a process in Oregon trying to prioritize what are we going to pay for? If we have a limited budget, what are we going to pay for in healthcare? What are we not? At some point, these decisions have to be put 
to a broader public to decide. And I am a firm believer in the wisdom of people once they understand the stakes and the trade-offs. So it's incumbent on all of us to set the table properly. But some of these decisions, how much we're going to spend, what things are covered, what things you know really should be covered and not covered, I don't think there's a right answer. The only answer is what's a democratic answer, or to put it a different way, and I say this facetiously, obviously, but if the American people, in their wisdom, want to spend 100% of GDP on healthcare, it is their right and privilege. And what I mean by that is, essentially, that's not going to happen. If people really have an understanding of the stakes, then I think there's a countervailing force that can be mobilized. But this is a huge undertaking. It would be a sea change in how healthcare is experienced and thought of in this country, mostly by non-professionals. They got to start thinking harder about what they want to see in the healthcare system in their community. Because how much of the problem of low-value care and the kind of expansion we keep seeing as opposed to the do everything for the patient, minimize what you do to the patient, is driven by greed, do you believe? Is underneath all of this, this driving profit motive, is, or is it much more subtle than that? I think it's by degree. Some of it is not subtle at all, right? All you have to do is look at the Lowndes Institute's annual Shkreli Awards, and you know that some of it's not subtle at all. Some say of, more about that program because people <laughs> probably don't know it. So the Lowndes Institute, every year we put out the Shkreli Awards named after the famous pharma bro, Martin Shkreli, who, what was it, Daraprim? I can't remember the drug. You know, he's a hedge fund guy. He buys a drug company, buys a drug. It used to cost like 60 cents, and now he charges $6 or $600, something insane. And he thinks he's doing the moral thing because that's what the ethical thing to do is on Wall Street, make money. Anyway, we've named these awards, and every year we sort of highlight profiteering and dysfunction with the Shkreli Awards. And this year, actually, USA Today covered it, the largest circulation paper in the country. So after four or five years, it's really starting to attract notice. So that's the kind of worst case. I think it gets more subtle. And I think one of the big concerns I have is that there's been a sea change in the last 10 years and certainly the last 20 years. More and more doctors are now employed. I mean, when I practiced as a cardiologist, we were independent. We had a practice group. We were our own business. You know, that has its own issues. But now more and more docs are employed. Large systems are consolidating. There's a massive scale and, you know, this sort of independence of professional judgment, integrity, all that stuff is really under fierce challenge. Now, the rhetoric is one thing, like when the Lowne Institute also does the Hospital Social Responsibility Index, and one of the metrics we report on is overuse at the hospital. And hospital executives will say and have said, we don't make those decisions, the doctors make those decisions. And they're not wrong. That's absolutely true. But I think the era in which doctors were truly independent in that way is behind us. And it's a little bit disingenuous now with these mega corporate entities, even the nonprofit entities, being so large and so kind of financially driven. It's disingenuous to say that the senior leadership, the business leadership, doesn't hold some responsibility for some of these practices. So I think there's a lot of concern, especially as we go forward. And therefore, the question of greed becomes subtle and deeply embedded into day-to-day -day business practices and how the medical record is set and how the billing is done and who does what. There are these deep 
kind of principles that you need to embed in your system. And Don, you've been doing this kind of work forever. So you know better than I do, really, that getting those kinds of principles of improvement, of collaboration, all those principles, including this one of high value care and not low value care, that is a long-term task that really requires all hands on deck. Yeah, it's going to require a really change in thinking. Well, Vikas, we're just about out of time. I really want to thank you for being with us. But one final question, you mentioned the Lown Institute. This is the nonprofit that you run and I think founded. Can you just tell our listeners how they could access the information and help that might uh, the Lown Institute's trying to make available nationally? For our general work, it's really the launinstitute.org is the website. You'll find everything we're doing there. We're due for a refresh. It's been quite a few years. But the other, which is the hospitals work that I talked about, the Hospital Social Responsibility Index, that's really launhospitalsindex.org. And so either one of those will get you to our work. And there's a lot going on there. Because let me add my thanks to Don's. It's been a pleasure to hear you. Thank you for your work over decades now of trying to help people understand what the challenges might be with more healthcare and how low-value care might be, in fact, contributing to considerable waste, but also considerable harm to our patients, families, and communities, and through your work at the Lown Institute and elsewhere. Thank you for joining us here. Maybe we should close with the quote from Bernie Lown that you made earlier, the more time you spend with the patient, the more efficient you are. That's the paradox in healthcare. And hopefully we can see that become part of an axiomatic, maybe that can become part of how healthcare becomes part of our fabric in our communities in the future. Thank you once again for being here on Turn On The Lights, and we hope to have you back again sometime in the future. Thank you for having me. Don, that was a fun conversation with Vikas on a topic that I think is actually widely misunderstood or there's limited understanding around this topic of overuse or inappropriate use what did you hear? What did you think about the conversation? Well, first, I mean, Vikas was mentored by Dr. Bernard Laun, and both of them are willing to break some China. They're willing to kind of question some long-held assumptions and chivalrous in healthcare, the biggest of which is more is better. I remember Dr. Laun was just passionate about this. He prided himself on discovering that a patient for whom someone else had recommended surgery or an intervention actually didn't need it. And that was a discovery he often made. And so that's general thing. I think I'm trying to remember Costa's exact words, but he said something like Dr. Lowndes' teaching was do as much as possible for the patient and as little as possible to the patient. And like you're saying, Kater, I think we might be in a culture in which people would say, do everything for me without that second part, as little as possible. On both sides of the equation, on the patient side, as well as on the provider side, I think the patients, or at least there's this, in many cases, patients come to us asking for things or expecting certain things. And I think on the provider side, we often end up ordering everything when we could be more careful and judicious about what is necessary. We do more to and less for, as Bernie Lowne would have the exact inverse in some ways of what Lowne had advocated for. I mean, you're in practice right now and see patients I've stopped to doing that a while ago. Do you experience this? How does it feel to you in terms of pressures to do more, even sometimes unnecessary stuff? Does this cross your mind? I think there's always a tendency. There's always a patient story that we can harken back to of someone who's come into the clinic saying, I must have 
X or Y, I've got a headache, a head seat, a CAT scan of my head, or I've got back pain, I need an MRI of my back, or I've had a sniffle, I need an antibiotic that they've already got picked out, you know, essentially. So those kinds of moments happen. But I think this all comes down to whether you've got a relationship with the individual, because if you have a relationship with the patient, you can leverage the, that relationship, you can leverage the trust that you've built with them to explain why that may or may not be the right decision or choice. I'm not saying, by the way, that every circumstance in which someone has a headache or back pain or some kind of a pneumonia, that a scan or a treatment isn't necessary. In some cases, they will be. But without that type of trusting relationship or foundation, it becomes very difficult to have that type of negotiation or conversation. And increasingly, as healthcare becomes transactional and less relational, unfortunately, the basis of forming those kinds of relationships, that trusting relationship is gradually being chipped away at, I'm afraid. And so you end up with small moments of time with your patients, and that becomes very difficult to navigate around some of this. And a lot of folks just throw up their hands and say, I'm just going to give you what you're asking for because I've got about seven and a half minutes to do it. I sometimes wonder if this is a manifestation in part of what seems to be the cultural shift in the large and loss of faith in large institutions. People worried that they're out there agents of self-interest who are going to take things away from them, withhold things. Right. I don't know this to be the case, but part of what Vikas is talking about, the other side of it is patients who feel someone out there is trying not to give me what I need, mm -hmm. which is sometimes true. On the other hand, when we scientifically realize that we this test actually doesn't help or this MRI is not called for, your outcomes are going to be better without it. Or even uh, it could cause certain, harm. Yeah, it could go it further. Could harm, yeah. Or this surgery, you know, it's a risk benefit. The, the risks are a lot greater than the benefits when that's what we actually know. What the patient may hear is quite a different signal, which is, I'm not going to give you what you want. And so this is a communication trust building at the individual level, like you and your patient, but also institutionally, how do we restore faith in scientifically guided medicine? Not to mention the economic interests. The patients you're seeing are seeing pharmaceutical ads to take the purple pill or whatever, you know, whenever they turn on a football game. Those companies are not doing that to waste money. They know that it works. I think actually that's an important point actually in this story, which is the fact that our patients are coming to us far more educated and aware and involved in their care than perhaps they've come into healthcare settings in the past. And unless we acknowledge that understanding and that, that depth and awareness as a clinical community, we will struggle to build those kinds of bridges. If we start from the position of what you saw on TV was nonsense, or the Google search you did on your symptoms is bogus. If we start from that assumption or that belief, then we're immediately putting the clinician and the patient into an oppositional relationship rather than saying, we're both actually trying to solve the same problem, right? We're both trying to get to the bottom of why you've got a headache or why you're experiencing that set of symptoms. And here is what my expertise as a clinician in years of practice have helped me understand and bringing that together with what you're learning from Dr. Google and, and Alexa. That's actually a trust builder. That's a way of building that kind of relationship that can help enhance the trust necessary to do then to make the hard choice of saying, this is actually not the best path. Here's a better one going forward. As a doctor, I'm also, of course, a patient sometimes. And I've seen enough in my research, my work with IHI and elsewhere to be very, very wary of errors that are made in healthcare, the toxicities of everything we do, even stuff that does help always carries an edge of risk. You know, I approach medicine with a less is better attitude, I must admit, maybe even to a fault. If, and I guess we don't know for sure, but if the public's view in general is 
more is better. Is that a transition we can make? Can you imagine winning over the public into the view that Less every step we take costs money, adds risk, and maybe not be for, as good for you as someone has told you? This is an interesting point. I didn't know this about the two of us, but I have the exact same point of view around this. Less is more from my perspective with regards to healthcare. It's probably just because we spend all of our time studying risks and errors and challenges and all that in, in healthcare. But I have the same view. I can tell you now that I will approach almost anything. I approached a procedure that I underwent not long ago without any anesthesia because I didn't want the risk of the medications. That's how strongly I feel about my aversion to risk is so high. And my knowledge of what can go wrong, there's a lot of it. So I think every one of these kinds of opportunities, when something is presented, I'll always choose the the least intervention. In part, I wonder if this conversation, if our listeners are hearing us, hearing two clinicians talk about this, is part of what we need to be doing to change the kind of popular narrative that more is better in healthcare to one of not necessarily less is better, but appropriate is better. And there is an appropriateness that's probably somewhere between minimalism and maximalist uh, notions of what we should be doing in healthcare. Yeah, it's a line we'll have to walk. You know that recently a study done at, uh, by Harvard in 11 Massachusetts hospitals showed an injury rate to patients. That's an error rate leading to some patient consequences. Believe it or not, 24% of yeah. the thousands of records that were studied is one out of four hospital patients being subjected to consequences yeah. from an error in their care. Not, by the way, anything intentional. I think the staff never want to do that, but it's just built into our very complex systems. And some of those were minor, but some were pretty major. So we could tell a very scary story about stay as far from the hospital as you can get, but that would be the wrong story too, because it's exactly what Dr. Lown taught. Everything possible for the patient, which may include an effective hospitalization or surgery, and as little as possible to the patient. That's the fine line we have to walk. We have to create awareness without terror, you know? Yeah, Uh, that's right. Kind of skepticism without self-harming resistance. And so- But also a sense, um, I think as much as patients are coming in with their own now understanding of what their clinical condition is that they've gotten from what they've researched and looked at on the internet or otherwise, I think building this notion that there is some risk in healthcare, that more is not necessarily better, is something that we have to do more to help nurture in the wider public imagination. Because I think that's just knowing this without creating panic or terror, as you're describing, knowing that there's an appropriate level of care, that everything is a risk benefit is something that we all have to appreciate and understand. There's risk benefit to getting in a car, getting in an airplane, as we all understand on some level. I think we have to have that same appreciation for healthcare. We still do it. We still get in cars and get in airplanes and go places and see family and friends and whatever, right? But we have an appreciation on some level that there's some risk every time I get into a car or every time I get into an airplane. And knowing that that risk is also true when I take an antibiotic or when I go into a hospital is, I think, just as important as knowing that there's risk when you get into a car. Hopefully in this podcast series, we're going to be able to explore more the financial side of this because it should not go without saying that some of this risk introduced by excess comes from a system in which from the hospital's point of view, or even the physician's point of view, the more you do, the better, the more you get paid. And so that's a defect in the way we've set up most of healthcare payment. And it should make us wary as patients. I don't think that there are many hospitals or many docs who sit in a smoke-filled room and figure out how to do things that aren't necessary, but it does shift the bias toward intervention. The other side of the coin are global payments where we try to change the incentives. And there, the risk is the opposite, which is patients won't get things they need because people make money by withholding care. We're going to have to explore the payment systems and the balance and how maybe we in this country 
should be migrating toward ways of payment that don't bias either direction so that we do as much as possible for the patient, as little as possible to the patient. Well, Don, maybe we ought to leave it there with Bernie Lowndes' quote, which is everlasting and so important to, I think, all of our listeners. Thanks so much and looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.